This is the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Each episode, we help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word. Invest your heart and personal life into your study and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode. It is just me, Zach. I'm without my wife, Krista, this week for no other reason than we just plum ran out of energy. We, we sat down last night um, already a day late. Uh, we've had a crazy June, a lot going on for our family. And so we sat down last night, June 1st, uh, to finally plan and record our podcast episode, and we just ran out of energy. Um, not even the dark chocolate sea salt covered uh, caramels from Costco. If you haven't had those, they will change your life. Those are usually our go-to pick-me-up. Not even having a couple of those uh, saved our energy. So um, so it's just me. Um, so I apologize that you don't get her, but I am really excited about this question this month um, for a couple of different reasons. So first of all, the question is, why should I trust imperfect church leaders? And that question comes from a couple of different places. First, just in looking at our study this month in Come Follow Me, we get the opportunity to study the book of Acts. However, we have a blind spot in most of our scripture, well, in every book of scripture that we study, in that we start a new book, we get really enthusiastic and excited and uh, so we know really well the beginning of that book of Scripture, and then we kind of lose energy and steam as we go throughout the rest of that book of Scripture. Case in point, uh, we all could probably recite almost from memory and almost in exact order the story of Nephi, Lehi, Laman, Lemuel, their family leaving Jerusalem, and everything that happens in First and Second Nephi. We would probably do okay at the story that comes after that, we jump right into King Benjamin and the sons of King Benjamin and the sons of uh, the sons of Mosiah. So King Benjamin's son, sons of Mosiah and Alma. And then we start to lose track. And if you were to ask the average church member, yeah, what happens in Alma chapter 22? We know what happens in 1 Nephi chapter 3, right? I will go and do the things the Lord commands, but we kind of lose focus, especially and then when you start asking, well, what happens then in Helaman chapter 4? Or what's the story in Ether chapter 8? Um, <clears throat> and that's not just a Book of Mormon thing. Uh, think of what we know about the beginning of church history. Joseph Smith's first vision, the coming of the angel Moroni, translation of plates, Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, all of that's wonderful. And then we kind of lose track of the story when we get to Kirtland and Nauvoo and, and Missouri. And we know the details are just not quite as clear. Old Testament's the same thing, right? We know the creation of the world. We know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we get to Moses and we love Moses. And we feel like we've studied the entire story of the New Testament. And we realize we've only made it through the first couple of books. And then we have thousands of years of history afterwards that we're kind of rusty on. Well, the New Testament, we have a similar kind of blind spot. We love the Gospels. We have this wonderful story and teachings of the Savior that's repeated to us four times in a row for emphasis. And then we hit the book of Acts and we uh, we lose our focus. It gets blurry. And even though we might know a story here or there, uh, it's definitely not as as uh, intent to focus as we have in the be- at the beginning of the year. Um, so part of this question comes because I really want to highlight and animate the power of the book of Acts. Uh, 
Um, Luke is the author of this book, and it's pretty clear from reading the Gospel of Luke and then Acts right next to each other that Luke intends us to read them right uh, back to back. In fact, I think it's kind of unfortunate that the book of John separates the two because really the way it should work is you should read the Gospel of Luke and then you should jump right into the beginning of Acts. Uh, just to read, this is the beginning of, of Acts. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus. Theophilus could be a name, uh, it could be a title. Theophilus means friend of God. So it could be Luke writing to an individual named Theophilus, um, or it could just be Luke writing to anyone who considers themselves a friend of God. But he says, the former treatise, i.e. the Gospel of Luke, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And the word that's interesting there is began. Luke says that the Gospel of Luke is the story of all that Jesus began to do which then means that the book of Acts is the rest of the story of what Jesus did. If you read these two stories, it almost reads as if the book of Luke is a preface, a primer for the book of Acts. And I've often wondered if you were to ask Luke, what's the more miraculous thing that happened? That, uh, that uh, Jesus of Nazareth taught and healed um, and began his ministry or that after his resurrection, the resurrected Jesus led and grew an entire religion that spread his message throughout the world. I wonder if you were to ask Luke, which of the two is the more miraculous, what he might say? Because when you read the book of Acts, it almost makes it sound like Acts is at least as miraculous as the gospel of Luke. And yet when we read them, we know Luke's gospel far better than we know the Acts of the Apostles. So, there's the first reason why this question is important, because I think it's really going to help us get to the heart of what Luke is focusing on in the book of Acts. Uh, the other reasons are a little bit more personal. Um, last semester in Institute, I, um, I invited students, I do this at the beginning of every semester, to submit anonymous questions. I give them a little preface of what this course is going to be. Last semester, the course just happened to be answering gospel questions. And at the beginning of the course, I invited them to submit just anonymous questions they had. We got a whole slew of them. But one of the questions that came in was this, why does God allow local leaders in the church to drive people away from his church? And you can maybe sense in that question, both the sincerity, but also the pain. Um, I don't know who asked the question, but I'm going to guess that they have either experienced um, some some feelings of dissatisfaction or maybe even offense from church leaders themselves or they know and care about someone that has. Um, and uh, that question we were able to approach as an institute class, uh, but I think it deserves more attention. And I actually think the book of Acts gives us a wonderful place to look at that. So there's one personal reason for asking this. Uh, the second one is um, uh, I have a friend that I have recently got to know pretty well. She's um, she's uh, going to school uh, as a seminarian, so she's going into the ministry. And as I've talked with her a little bit about just uh, Christianity in general, one of the things that she brought up was it's difficult to trust organizational leaders. And she pointed out to me some stories where uh, really charismatic, seemingly 
uh, Christian, God-fearing men or women uh, led churches. These are, would be Protestant churches, but, um, but led churches that grew, and there was an emphasis, and there was a momentum, and there was an ex- excitement only to find out that that charismatic church leader was uh, at the very least less than honest and less than wholesome, and sometimes at the very worst, um, just downright doing really wicked things. And uh, you have hear enough stories like that, and it starts to crush your confidence in anyone leading the church. And so this friend says to me, my, my religion is based on me, and it's based on the scriptures, the Bible, uh, and that's it. I stopped there because I don't trust anyone else. My words, not hers, but I think that's the gist of kind of what she was saying, which is a really fair point, especially if you're coming from a world where leadership uh, uh, is, is, is wanting uh, and where just about everywhere we look, it's pretty clear to see that uh, there are flaws and mistakes in our leaders, uh, political, governmental, local, etc. And it makes it difficult to trust um, what they would say or what they would tell us to do. So those two questions are really personal. And I think maybe, maybe you have questions similar to that, or you know someone that does. The third reason that is really personal, though, is this. Over the past couple of months, I have been kind of immersed into a study of uh, prophetic priority. I have listened to more talks from President Nelson over the past couple of months than I have ever listened to anything from any general authority ever. Um, It's been almost on shuffle just listening to his talks over the past couple of years, especially the talks he's given as president of the church, uh, repeatedly over and over and over again. Um, In addition to that, I have tried to make the words of the Lord's living prophet and apostles and church leaders uh, more a practical part of my life. And uh, I have a, a testimony to share about that, which I'll share at the very end. Um, but it's it's very motivating to me, and it's it's made a really big difference. And so that's maybe a third reason why this topic matters. Enough to say, that's where we're going this episode. So let's dive in. Uh, John, we're going to back up just a little bit to John chapter 18. You will remember this from the very end of our study in the Gospels. This moment where Jesus is betrayed and arrested, and he's being interrogated by the Sanhedrin. And if you remember, outside that building, there's Peter. And I just want to read this small account. This is John chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, which is John. John never names himself, so that's John. So Peter and John following Jesus. That disciple, John, was known unto the high priest, and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that door the other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spoke unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Now, just to pause real quick, this girl that keeps the door, uh, it seems from the account that she recognizes John. Otherwise, she wouldn't let him in. And so John comes back out on seeing that Peter wasn't allowed in. He speaks with this woman, this young woman that keeps the door, um, and brings in Peter. As he's walking through the door, verse 17, Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art thou also one of this man's disciples? 
And then, of course, we know the answer Peter gives. He saith, I am not. Now, you can put yourself in the shoes of this young damsel, this young maiden. Um, I'm, I'm reading a bit into this, but I don't think it's implausible to say. If she knows John, I'm going to guess that John has told her about Jesus. Um, she recognizes that Peter, with John, is very likely one of Jesus' disciples. And there seems to be, from this account, no malintent on her part. Um, in fact, if and this is where I'm reading into it, I wonder, and there are some Christian traditions to back this up, but I wonder if this young woman is either a believer herself or on the way to belief. I can imagine that she has heard John in some setting teach and talk about this Jesus, the Messiah. She's a Hebrew girl. She recognizes that. Maybe she's had a chance to see uh, Jesus or hear him herself or have some interaction with him. And so here comes John and Peter, and she recognizes John, and she turns to Peter and says, oh, are you one of his disciples also? To which Peter, for whatever reason, denies his knowledge. Um, if you want, by the way, side note, parentheses, if you want a very interesting alternate study of this account, you go back and you read Peter, my brother, from President Kimball, which gives a wonderful interpretation of this that um, is, is very um, kind to Peter. Um, and I think is completely appropriate. But for whatever reason, Peter denies knowing Christ. And if that's you, if you're this young woman that's on your way to belief, what kind of an impact would that have on you? Especially as, let's say, that not too many weeks or months later go by before this happens. This is Acts chapter 2. Verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, this sudden rushing wind comes in, they feel the Spirit, and then in verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. And then he begins to preach about Jesus. If you're the young woman sitting in the audience, do you have any kind of an issue with that or a problem? Um, seeing this man who stands up at the head of the 12 and, and for all intents and purposes takes over leadership of the church, and yet you have had an interaction with him where you saw him do something that is problematic to you. Um, I want us to put ourselves in that young woman's mind and heart and ask the question again, why should I then trust Peter? Why should I trust imperfect church leaders when I know that they're imperfect? Maybe I've even seen or feel some of their imperfections in my life. Why then should I trust what they say or what they tell me to do? Um, if that story doesn't resonate with you, then, uh, of course, you can jump forward just a couple of chapters. And we have the account of Saul, who persecutes the church. He holds the robes for everyone that stones Stephen to death. And then it says, eight, chapter 8, verse 3, Saul made havoc of the church. Um, and then he, of course, has his incredible conversion. But this, to me, is interesting. Chapter 9, Acts 9, verses 20 and 21. After his conversion, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? In other words, you're listening to Saul uh, preach 
And you remember Saul doing the exact opposite. Um, in political terms, we would call this a flip-flopper, which is, um, in my very untrained political ears, one of the worst things you can call a leader, right? Someone that doesn't hold to what they believe, someone that's not convicted and that doesn't stay strong. And here we have Saul doing exactly that. If you're one of those in the audience, what are your feelings? What are your emotions? And how can you ever trust this Saul apostle, this Paul, when you know what he was and when you see um, what uh, what he was before and, and what he's trying to become now. Maybe you have your own experiences, your own stories with local leaders or with general leaders, but the question is a relevant one. It's a question that I think is important and it's meaningful. And as Chris and I studied last night and we looked at some of the answers that we came up with, uh, the first thought we had was, boy, this is such a good study. We don't want to bias anyone's study by giving them answers that might be meant just for us. So in this episode, I am not going to give you any answers that I have found. Um, I have found some. There are some incredible stories in there uh, that I just I just love. And I might cheat a little bit and tell a few of them, but I'll stop short of, of giving what I think is the reason, or at least one of the reasons, why we can trust in perfect church leaders. I think it's a fascinating question and a really meaningful one to study in the book of Acts. But what I do want to do is give three considerations as you read about imperfect church leaders and as you consider yourself and your own um, your own trust in and maybe obedience to what those church leaders might say or do. The first is this. It is not, nor should it be, surprising to us that church leaders are imperfect. Now, I know that we know that intellectually. No one in the church would ever say, I believe that church leaders are perfect. But we act like that all the time. In fact, uh, I had a friend of mine who was Catholic once say, uh, you know, the difference between Mormons and Catholics is that Mormons don't believe their church leaders are perfect, but they act like they are. Catholics believe that the Pope is infallible, but they act like he isn't. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I can't speak for Catholics, but I can speak for us that we doctrinally know that we are led by imperfect women and men. Uh, but sometimes we act like they are perfect. And when something comes up that is imperfect about them, something that's jarring, whether it's a big thing in church history about Joseph Smith or Brigham Young, or whether it's a small thing from our local church leader, it, uh, it causes us more, it causes us problems probably because we just aren't expecting it. And we should. It is not surprising that church leaders are imperfect. To prove this point, um, just look at what we know about Peter. Um, <laughs> not only does Peter deny Christ three times, but remember, Peter is the one that uh, jumps out of the boat and then starts to drown because he doubts that Jesus has the power to save him. Uh, Peter is the one that chops off Malchus's ear in a, in a rusty and a hust, uh, hasty rush to defend Jesus, which also stems from a lack of faith and confidence that Jesus can take care of himself. Uh, Peter falls asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane multiple times when asked by the Savior to uh, stay awake with him and watch with him, to watch the atonement. Peter falls asleep. 
Um, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter returns to fishing. And if you remember Elder Holland's great talk on that, the chastisement the Savior gives to Peter. Peter, isn't it clear then and isn't it clear now that if I want fish, I can get fish? Um, and recalling Peter to the apostleship, and the discipleship, to go out and minister as he was commanded to do at the end of Matthew. And so it's very clear that the Peter that stands up in the book of Acts, that's bold and filled with the Holy Ghost, is not perfect. He's imperfect. And the text, the scriptural text, is the proof of that. Um, I find Peter incredibly relatable because unlike Saul or Alma the Younger, I've never tried to destroy church members. And um, and maybe unlike, uh, oh, I don't know, Nephi, um, I, I, I've never, we have to dig to find some imperfections. I, I, I'm not in that boat, but I sure do feel a lot like Peter, where I just make some dumb decisions. And yet, it is very clear from what the Savior says in John 15, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you to be apostles and to spread the message of the gospel. Peter is chosen very clearly by an all-knowing Savior, uh, as are the other apostles, disciples, and women who are called to minister, to serve, or to spread the message of the gospel. It's very clear that Jesus calls imperfect people uh, to go and to preach. And it's the texts that show us their imperfections. Uh, if you want another example of this, um, look at Doctrine and Covenants. Um, this is Joseph Smith uh, chapter, so Doctrine and Covenants section 3. This is right after the, the loss of the 116 manuscript pages. You remember Joseph gives the 116 pages to Martin Harris upon Martin's multiple requests. Joseph asks the Lord, receives no multiple times, then finally allows Martin to take them. Um, I have heard people teach this as if section three was aimed at Martin Harris, which is not accurate. Uh, it is aimed at Joseph Smith. And so imagine if you're Joseph Smith, what this means to you, uh, starting in verse four. For although a man may have many revelations and have power to do many mighty works, yet if he boasts in his own strength, and sets it not the counsels of God, and follows after the dictates of his own will and carnal desires, he must fall and incur the vengeance of a just God upon him. Behold, you have been entrusted with these things. How strict were your commandments. And remember also the promises which were made to you if you did not transgress them. And behold, how oft have you transgressed the commandments and the laws of God and have gone on in the persuasions of men. Um, that's a hard thing for Joseph to hear. Imagine what it means to be commanded by God to publish that revelation in the Book of Commandments and then in the Doctrine and Covenants for the entire church to read. And that's not the only section that does this. Joseph writes in his own history how much he struggled as a youth, and he writes about things that he struggled with as an adult. We read multiple sections where Joseph is chastised, where he's called foolish in some places. This is the prophet of the Restoration. This is the person that John Taylor will say, no one else save Jesus only has done more for the salvation of men than the prophet Joseph Smith. And yet, Joseph Smith, by his own admission, was an extremely rough stone rolling. Um, and it's not hidden. We don't have to dig in some obscure church history account to find Joseph saying, yeah, you're right. You got me. I'm imperfect. 
I didn't want to tell everybody. I wanted to keep it secret. I wanted to pretend like I was perfect. So I tucked away this little admission of my guilt in some obscure church history reference. It's in section three of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's in John 18 of the Gospels. Uh, It's all over in the scriptures. In fact, even me mentioning Nephi is an error because you can find, uh, in fact, probably better to say it this way. It is impossible, and I have tried, it is impossible to find any prophet, any apostle, or any individual in scriptures where there is not at least a hint, even if the narration of their story is really short, if there's not at least some kind of a hint that they're human, um, and for many of them that they make mistakes. So the first consideration as you're reading the book of Acts and considering your own relationship with church leaders, uh, the imperfection of our church leaders isn't surprising. It's not even hidden. So let's stop acting like it is. Let's stop being surprised when someone somewhere comes out with a podcast episode or an article or something that says, guess what? Did you know Joseph Smith did this? Uh, because you should be able to say, well, yeah, I expect Joseph Smith to be imperfect. I expect President Nelson to be imperfect. It's actually more surprising uh, to find things that President Nelson is really well off on. Um, and so let's just be a little bit more open to um, to what we know is doctrinally true. Let's be a little more open to it in our heart. The second consideration, um, it's not a barrier that these individuals are imperfect, um, especially if you understand what it is that apostles or prophets are called to do. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. After Jesus uh, is with the apostles for those 40 days, he tells them this, You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. By the way, as a side note, if you want a way that that's that's Luke headlining what the gospel or what the book of Acts is about. Those four uh, breaks are the four chapters in the book of Acts. First, the disciples go to Jerusalem. They are in and around Jerusalem for the first couple of chapters. Then they go to all Judea. Then they spread out into Samaria. And then the end of the book of Acts is Paul on his way to Rome. Um, So unto all the earth. But did you catch what their what their assignment is, what their calling is? They are to be witnesses. That's what they're called to do. They're not called to be experts. They're not called to be scriptorians. They're not called to be perfect. Uh, they're not called to be anything other than disciples of Christ and witnesses of his resurrection. And yet, we sometimes try and hold our church leaders to standards that the Lord himself doesn't even put on them. We try and hold them to positional expectations that the Lord himself doesn't put on them. To be clear, they have other expectations. Our church leaders have other things the Lord expects of them. Um, But we shouldn't be surprised when, uh, when they focus on their primary responsibility to witness when we might want them to do or say something else that falls on the tertiary or the outside of that uh, that expectation. In fact, one example I love of this is in Acts chapter 3. I love when Peter and John find this man who's who's been laying every day since he's been born at the temple, um, asking or begging for, for, for money. And Peter and John walk by, and this is Acts chapter 3. I just love the way that Luke tells the story. Verse 4, 
And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he, meaning the man, gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Pause real quick. When we look at our church leaders, what are we expecting to receive from them? Because if it's anything other than a witness of Jesus Christ and his gospel, I can imagine that what our church leaders might say to us is what Peter says to this man. Verse 6, Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's a beautiful story. Um, And Peter will emphasize this point multiple times. He's hauled in front of the Sanhedrin where uh, they ask him about this miracle, and he tells them, I didn't do it. This is the Jesus that you all crucified. It's his power and his name that caused this miracle. He says that to the Sanhedrin. He says it to anyone listening. Uh, He's almost kind of frustrated. This is verse 12 in chapter 3. As the people are gathering, run together, he says, Why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man walk? And then he says down in verse 16, It is his name, the Prince of Life, through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, it is by the faith which is in him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So Peter is very clear to emphasize, this isn't me. This doesn't come from any skill that I have. I'm not a healer. I'm not a miracle worker. Um, I'm not a teacher. Everything I have comes from him. Um, I recently heard that Elder Neil L. Anderson was asked once, how do you prepare for a speaking opportunity when you go to a state conference or when you uh, even are speaking in general conference? And that Elder Anderson's response was, um, I, I go and read what President Nelson said, and then I say that. Well, if you look at President Nelson's talks, it is very clear that what President Nelson is doing is the exact same thing. I go and read what the Lord has said, and then I say that. So here's Elder Anderson saying, I just say what the prophet says. And here's the prophet saying, and I just say what Jesus says. And Peter is doing the exact same thing. So it's not a barrier that these church leaders are imperfect. Um, In fact, it's probably a benefit. They are supposed to be witnesses of Christ and fully reliant on him. And so it should be no surprise that imperfect people are called because they're the ones far more likely to be reliant on the Savior and on his power. Now, closely related to that, one final consideration. I think it's not only um, to be expected that church leaders are imperfect, and I think it's not only that it's not a barrier, I think it is divinely designed that our church leaders, uh, ancient, historical, and present, are imperfect. Paul will say it this way. This is a little bit out of this month, but 1 Corinthians, which we'll study next month. Paul says this, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Um, just listen to an apostle describing the calling of church leaders. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things that are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and all things which are not 
to bring to naught things that are. I love that phrase. That no flesh should glory in his presence, meaning in his own presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. In other words, God specifically chooses and calls imperfect people so that, A, they will not rely on their own strength, so that, B, when we look at them, we can clearly see and glory in the Lord. It is Jesus who has made wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, not those that are called by him to lead. Very similarly, in the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, Joseph Smith records this from the Lord. Verse 17, Wherefore, I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from heaven, and gave him commandments. Now, I hear people read that, and we stop there and say, isn't that great? We called Joseph Smith. But we don't read the rest of it. So, listen to the rest of it. Verse 18, and also gave commandments to others that they should proclaim these things unto the world. And all this, that it might be fulfilled, which is written by the prophets, the weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones. That man should not counsel his fellow man, neither trust in the arm of flesh, but that every man might speak in the name of God the Lord, even the Savior of the world. That faith also might increase in the earth. That mine everlasting covenant might be established that the fullness of my gospel might be proclaimed by the weak and the simple unto the ends of the world and before kings and rulers. Behold, I am God and have spoken it. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. As I have come to understand this principle that not only is the imperfection of our church leaders okay, it's on purpose, I have come to understand a really powerful truth for me. My confidence or trust in church leaders is not based on church leaders. Uh, now, I am one who I love Russell and Nelson as an individual. I think he's inspired. I think he's very skilled. The way that he teaches just speaks to me. It's very, very compelling to me to have him as president of the church. Um, there are other members of the Quorum of the Twelve that I feel similarly about. And just like you, there are other members of the Quorum of the Twelve that when they speak in general conference, it maybe doesn't resonate as much to me because their personality or the way that they teach or explain things uh, isn't as conducive to me learning as some others are. Well, what happens if I'm focused on the individual, on their personality, their practice, when one of them then is called as the president of the church? Does that mean that I'm entitled because that individual is different than someone I resonate with to give less attention or less commandment, uh, less heed to their commandments or their instructions? Absolutely not. So I've come to learn that as good as President Nelson is, as, as much as I like him as an individual, I can't trust and follow him because of him. My trust in church leaders comes not because of them. It comes because I truly do believe that God has called them to speak and teach to us. I truly believe that God has called my bishop to be the bishop of my ward. And I have had experiences where I have seen God work through my bishop.
Um, he's not a perfect man. Uh, he's loving and caring, and I find him very warm and friendly as an individual, but I don't follow him because of him. I follow him because I have trust and confidence in the Lord. I see that God in the Old Testament called imperfect people to be prophets and prophetesses. I see that the Lord in the New Testament called imperfect women and men to be disciples, apostles, house church leaders. Uh, and so if I believe that that is God, that that's his personality to call individual, imperfect individuals to lead, and I look at the world today, my confidence is that God is doing the same thing today, calling imperfect people. And so when I say I will follow President Nelson, it's not because I like President Nelson, even though I do. It's because I really do believe and have confirming experiences that God has called President Nelson as a prophet, that he has called apostles, church leaders to lead and to teach and to bear witness of him. Maybe to that, and in conclusion, uh, one last story that maybe best explains my testimony on this. One of my uh, favorite stories in the book of Acts comes at the very end in, in chapter 27. And I know we won't be reading here, if you're listening to this at the beginning of the month, we won't be reading here for a couple of weeks till the end of the month. But it's, I think, a, a helpful bookend to know this is what's coming at the end. So here we have Paul. Uh, he is prisoner and he's being taken prisoner to Rome, which he wants. And as he's on this boat, uh, the people like him. People like Paul. Um, the boat is in a place called Fair Havens. And as they're getting ready to sail, this is chapter 27, verse 10, Paul says, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading of the ship, but also of our lives. So here's an apostle looking and saying, I see something and I'm giving a warning. Nevertheless, in verse 11, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. There's one reason why he didn't believe. He believed the master and the owner of the ship more than Paul. But to add to that, because the haven was not commodious to winter in, meaning they don't want to stay there, the more part advised to depart thence, meaning there's a majority of people saying, mm, let's not do what this Paul is saying. And then in verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close to Crete. Meaning it makes no sense what this Paul is saying doesn't make any logical sense. Um, those are, in my mind, some of the most um, persistent and widespread reasons why people choose not to listen to and heed or follow church leaders today. Uh, someone else with more authority, quote unquote, is telling them not to. Uh, it it's an uncomfortable position where we're in, and we don't want to change that comfortable position, so that's why we don't listen. Um, we have peer pressure. More people are speaking against what this church leader might be saying than are speaking for him. Um, or it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't logically resonate with me. Well, as the story continues, they do sail. They get into a whole heap of trouble. They're almost about to die. And they're just getting ready to jump over ship. And then Paul, verse 21, after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened to me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and this loss. There's a the lesson. But then he does it again. 
And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. Uh, They don't listen again, and they start to get ready to abandon ship. Paul turns to the the centurion in verse 31 and says, Except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Um, There is an administrator of seminaries and institutes. His name's Chad Webb. If you want really good talks, just Google Chad Webb talks because they're always really, really good. So he is my boss as a seminary and institute employee. And uh, in my last meeting with him, he shared, our last meeting, multiple of us with him, uh, he shared that, that he has the opportunity on a regular basis to attend board of education meetings with apostles, prophets, and, and other church leaders. And as I was sitting there listening to him, I thought, man, that is such a unique and, and really cool blessing that Brother Webb has to be able to be in these regular board meetings and to ask questions to uh, prophets, apostles, general church leaders, and to get inspired divine answers. And then the thought came to me, you have that same opportunity. I have the words of prophets and apostles recorded and made available in the Gospel Library from General Conference at BYU Devotionals, BYU-Idaho Devotionals, in church magazines. I mean, you have to hide in the church to not find somewhere where you can listen to what these inspired women and men are, are, are teaching us. And so I made a goal for myself to have regular board meetings. Um, based a lot on this study that I've had over the past couple of months, different talks that I've been reading that have pointed me in this direction. And I can bear an experience, a a witness, I guess, or a testimony um, that what Paul said in that book, for me at least, has been true. When I am in the ship, things go well. If I seek to leave the ship, things become difficult. They become confusing or problematic. For me, that has been my experience. So if anyone were to ask me, why do you choose to follow your church leaders? Why not just take the scriptures that you have and take the Holy Spirit that's within you and, and go off and be a good Christian on your own? My answer would be, I have come to experience and see through multiple um, experiences and events that being in the boat with apostles, prophets, and church leaders uh, keeps me steady, keeps me afloat, keeps me going in the direction that I want to go. Uh, and ultimately, and most importantly, it brings me closer to the Savior. I understand him better. I know more about his covenants. My relationship with him has more meaning. I feel like I have more of his power in my life because of the work and the ministry of prophets, apostles, and church leaders. So, those are three considerations. I didn't answer the question for you, why should I? At least I didn't give a scriptural answer. Why should I follow imperfect church leaders? I gave my testimony, gave some considerations. I hope that this um, can be the beginning of a fabulous study that you have this month as you read in the book of Acts and as you put yourself in the shoes of these people that are listening to these imperfect church leaders who just love the Lord and want to teach and preach and do incredible things in his name. Read about the men that do it. Pay very close attention to the women who do it. There are incredible women leaders in the Acts uh, that we can learn about as well. So listen to both of them uh, and watch, hopefully, as it strengthens your own trust, not in your leaders, but in the fact that the Lord has called your leaders 
uh, to guide and lead you. Thank you so much for studying with me this episode. Krista should be back with me next month. Enjoy your study in the book of Acts, and we will see you next time.